This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Leader ReadyCast. We've all been struggling with the move to virtual everything since the outbreak of COVID-19. And one of the more persistent challenges has been to get people to understand novel threats and the steps that can be taken to mitigate them. Everything from personal protective equipment to social distancing, to hand washing, even to Zoom etiquette. The companies whose standard operating procedures risk with, rich with risk have been leading the way to help us better understand how to reimagine training and education to better engage recipients and increase the likelihood of tangible positive outcomes. Our guest today is at the forefront of this transformation. She's Muriel Barnier, founder of LimeCore Training and Communications, headquartered in the UAE. Now, I first met Muriel when she was reinventing health, safety, and environment training for a large company in the oil and gas sector. She was on a mission to save the world from death by PowerPoint, and I'm happy to report she is succeeding. Now, the insight she's going to share today can be put to use right now as we battle COVID-19, but they're also going to be useful in all the training you try and do going forward. I want you to listen carefully. She's got some really interesting things to say. Muriel, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's great to have you here. Now, you've thrown out a number of standard models for training out the window. Endless PowerPoint decks, for example. Now, what what do your trainings feel like? What actually happens and what makes them different? Yes, so we're on the journey to experiment new ways of training people and we came up with innovative models so far that proved to work. So I think our trainings feel positive and disruptive and they often also look quite messy if you enter in the room because people are very engaged, busy with activities all over the place. And they also feel tense at times because we often put the finger where it hurts. Uh, We even draw a big elephant on the flip chart that we keep in the room. And by the end of the training, the elephant is full of sticky notes and hard conversations that needed to happen to move forward happened. You know, there is a a famous quote from uh, Socrates. Um, He said, I cannot teach anybody anything I can only make them think and you know I always feel very humble when I meet our training participants from the operators working in the desert for months to executive leaders who are dealing with so much pressure and responsibilities so we are not there to teach them anything we are here to give them some space to think and to help we share you know research work concepts and some crazy ideas and we do activities to facilitate the the thinking process um but you know still today way too often training just looks at how people currently do work and try to get others to replay replicate it 
So this assumption is that what works today will work tomorrow. However, we live in such an uncertain and fast transforming world. And the best tool we have to deal with uncertainty is not machine, it's human beings. There is, you know, Jack Ma, it is someone who inspires me a lot. He stepped down from his role as chairman of Alibaba to focus on helping transforming education. And he says that education needs to stop focusing on acquisition of knowledge because machines can do it and instead focus on helping people develop non-technical skills such as independent thinking, caring for others, resilience, safe leaderships, etc. So this can only happen through experiential learning. That's really interesting because I know so much of the, the training world from which you came was about you know, safety training and the kind of things where I think the emphasis always was on the exact knowledge transfer. We, we take the manual, we put it up on the mm -hmm. screen, and we, we make you replicate it. So this experiential learning approach is very different. So how do you create an environment for experiential learning? Yes, so I will give you examples. I, I currently work on a very exciting project. It is to create a safety leadership academy, which aims at becoming the reference in the oil and gas industry. The SPE, it's the Society of Petroleum Engineers, is leading the project. Um, you know, it's, it's a big not-for-profit organization uh, with over 150,000 members around the world. And we partner with CEDEP, the European Center for Executive Development, which is um, executive education club, um, and they, you know, create uh, leadership development programs. So together, we decided to take the time first to listen to people, especially to leaders in the industry. We actually started this journey, this project, over 18 months ago, and the first academy will only take place uh, next year in January. So I think taking the time to listen to people is extremely important. And what we want to do is to create a safe space for companies in the industry to get together and define the future of safety leadership by having non-hire cutting edge conversations and by keeping an open mind as to the possibilities. So, you know, there will be no sugar coating in this program, no place to teach or train managers to be good safety leaders because it is nonsense in itself. So rather, you know, it will be an in-depth experience for learners to do the learning with the support of outstanding coaches and world-class experts that come for, from very different fields, not necessarily from you know, safety or oil and gas. So two examples on how we will create an environment in this program where we'll make room for experiential learning is first, we call it the CEDEP Inside Fair. So participants will come with a safety uh, challenge, a personal challenge that they face at work. And right from day one, instead of, you know, trying to work on finding solutions, we will help them take some steps back. What is the real problem they are trying to solve? What is the ecosystem in which the challenge lives? So to do so, participants are split into teams and each participant goes from one team to another and gets only a few minutes to explain their challenge. And after that, the team starts to discuss the challenge and provide insight. But at that point, the participants is not allowed to talk anymore just listen to people talking about their challenge. And it's quite frustrating, but 
then the participant goes to the next team and repeat this exercise again, but based on the first experience, they tweak the narrative of their challenge. So by the end of the full experience, after visiting all teams, the participants have reframed their challenge. They have broadened their view, they have unlearned assumptions and gained much needed insight. So, so another one, yes. I want you to pause here for just a second because I just want to clarify this. So what you're basically forcing people to do in a way is to stop talking and to listen and so they have to take in what other participants are saying and not just keep trying to sell what their challenge was as originally as originally framed. Is that correct? Yes. And also they realize that people do not understand. So they, you know, they want to, <laughs> they're trying, they want to talk and talk and explain more. But just by, you know, keeping quiet, they realize people, you know, I mean, talk about their challenge in the way that they had not thought about. So suddenly it's actually them, <laughs> you know, realizing that they don't understand themselves, their own challenge, and it helps them reframe it. Great. It, really interesting. I'm sorry. Go ahead to your second example. Yeah. So the second example is very different. Um, we, we are going to work with a UK-based company called Splash, and it is to integrate experiential learning through a real-life community project, such as, for example, building a playground for disabled children. So the project is completed in one day and the night before uh, we, we give the brief to the participants and they have to come up with a plan uh, to best coordinate their resources uh, to achieve uh, the project within a very fixed non-negotiable time frame, you know, because it's just one day and at like they start in the morning and at 4.30 the kids come um, very excited to discover their new uh, playground. So it places um, participants in very unfamiliar circumstances dealing with unfamiliar tasks. It is emotionally and physically challenging, but also very rewarding, right? I mean, there's lots of empathy, for example, in it um, that happens. And uh, what we do is that we use this um, experience, this project to introduce many different topics that we will cover during the program. Uh, same, we, we do it at the beginning of the program. So for example, you know, the, the dimension of uncertainty we were talking about that is so, you know, big right now is what the world is going through. So for example, we can introduce it in this project by providing a bit less material that needed to complete uh, the project, the, the playground, let's say, right? And we will see how participants are going to deal with it. I mean, they have a plan, they have resources, but less resources. How are they going to deal with stress and decision-making? Another core topic of uh, the program will be human factors. When it comes to safety management, it's, it's absolutely key. And it will help you know, a lot to, for the leaders, the participants to put themselves in the shoes of the frontline workers and look at safety management from their perspective. Because there's a lot of, you know, I mean, pointing fingers uh, at the you know, employees when, uh, when they get hurt and they did not follow the rules and suddenly they find themselves in this situation where they have to conduct this project safely, but with you know, time constraint, uh, limited resources, etc. And I'm also very interested 
in seeing how they will manage the operations um, you know, safely. Uh, like, are they going to intervene if they see their peers not wearing the full uh, personal protective equipment? You know, if, if someone is like, you know, removing the hard hat or safety glasses, etc. I'm, I'm wondering if they're going to intervene or if they see some people, you know, working unsafely. And what if they are missing some equipment to carry out the work safely? Like, I don't know, you know, barriers, for example, are they going to stop the job knowing that the kids will be there at 4.30, you know, ready, <laughs> excited to discover the playground? I'm wondering, you know, they will have to, you know, I mean, find solutions and that's reality, that's experience learning. So the debriefing time will be extremely important and we will actually film the day and we are going to use the film all throughout uh, the training program to debrief with them on various topics. So, so that's two examples now, you know, I also, I'm, I'm working on creating a, another uh, thing I'm using more and more is creating nudges uh, to continue the learner's journey after the, the training. And also before the pandemic, I started to explore the field of scenography to find new ways of learning. You know, scenography is, is this holistic approach to design performance environments. Uh, it includes, you know, sound, light, structure, performance performance, etc. And so I've done a few scenographic, you know, experiments, and I think we're onto something with it. And but overall, you know, just, just stepping into the dimension of authentic conversations in, in our training programs, I think is experiential learning. Those are really ex interesting examples. And I think that part of what I take away from what you're saying is that where once we thought of the quote-unquote trainer as sort of the sage on the stage, uh, delivering information, uh, doing a lot of output, what you're describing is much more of facilitation and creating an environment where people are going to, to, to learn on their own. You're creating the right conditions and putting the right injects in there, um, but it's, not very, it's very much not about standing mm -hmm. at the front of the room and lecturing people. Uh, I, I am curious, what do you do with those with the splash example um, if the project is not finished when the kids show up? <laughs> well, the participants will have to deal with uh, with the consequences, you know, and I think they will learn a lot from it. Actually, it, it's again we're not there to you know you know point fingers or <laughs> you know <laughs> we're we're they will have to deal with it and it's reality. And it's, uh, you know, they can relate to what happens also in, uh, in, in the workplace, I think. Yeah, that's good. No, it's, it's, I can see the relevance right away because there's always so much pressure to get a project done and that those deadlines are often the reason to cut corners and excuse yes. the behavior you shouldn't excuse. Now, how do you transfer all this to an online environment? I mean, I'm discovering death by Zoom is almost as bad as death <laughs> by PowerPoint. I spent six hours on Zoom doing trainings yesterday. Um, we're all getting Zoom fatigue. So, so how do you yes. transfer this to that online environment? Yes, yeah, so I agree with you. <laughs> but I also discovered great benefits in having virtual classrooms. Uh, you know, one of the main frustrations for organization is this feeling that their employees just go back to their routine after attending trainings and nothing really changes. And to be honest with you, even as, you know, trainers, we, we share this frustration. I'm I'm sure you you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so in, in a you know typical 
classroom training. We ask participants to work on an action plan. We hope they're going to work on it after the training, but no one really knows what happens. And another thing as well is that we do not have enough time, so we squeeze the best of our knowledge and experience and activities in a very short period of time. We rush and we rush, and it is a shame because we do not give the time for the learning to slowly penetrate people's mind, to stir up reflection and inspire them to find their own solutions. So with virtual training, we decided to take this opportunity to split the training time into chunks of four hours and leave a month between each module. First, we say, okay, we're going to leave, you know, um, half a day, like we're going to do it the next day. And then we say, no, we're going to leave a week. And then we say, you know what, we're going to leave a month between each module. And during these gaps, we give them a variety of uh, assignments. And some of these assignments are just to take the time to observe what's going on in their workplace, for example. So this allows, you know, also more time for us to give them feedback. And we also increase accountability because they know they will, you know, come back for the following module. So they know the next module is coming up, so they have to work on their assignment. And we basically with this, you know, virtual training and the fact that we can, um, you know, have a, a training that used to be two days in two days, I mean, 16 hours in two days, now it's, it's over four months, we learn to slow down. And as, as facilitators, as trainers, you know, we learn to slow down and to take the learning journey by foot instead of just flying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Another something else I, I really want to share, and it's been really a, a ha moment for me, is uh, as we started to do virtual training, was to understand that um, I understood I needed to give up the ownership of the slides to uh, the participants. So at first, uh, you know, we were very excited about the breakout room, breakout room functionality, uh, but we quickly found out that it was not always working. And uh, one of the reasons is that, you know, even in you know in small groups, the loudest people are usually the takeover. So, uh, you know. There's um, like the web conferences systems, they, they also uh, more and more they offer these uh, annotation tools and this really caught us by surprise. Um, we started to use this, you know, give access to uh, the participants uh, to write on the slides for specific activities and each time we did it we got massive response much more feedback you know and feedback that was so much more uh, honest than in the classroom because finally we had an anonymous tool a tool that a tool that puts everyone at the same level the junior guys are not afraid to share their thoughts in front of the senior guys the introvert expresses themselves as much as the extroverts you know because it's just it's on a screen and we don't know who use you know who writes what basically so after a few sessions we decided um, to give access to all participants to use these annotation tools at any point of time during the training. You know, the fact that this functionality is disabled, 
by default says a lot about our you know um, obsession with control we want to keep in control so by you know enabling the participants and telling them right from the start look you own the slides right you can write anytime whatever you want on the slides it's yours yes we become much more vulnerable but we got so much out of it and I want to let our listeners know that Muriel has provided us a couple of examples of what that looks like, and we will we'll post them on our website along with this uh, broadcast. I know it can be a bit difficult to, to visualize what it looks like when people are annotating slides on the fly like that, but uh, I'm anxious to try, and, to try this technique and see what comes out of it and, uh, and get away from the, the highly structured poles and, and uh, other control mechanisms uh, that, that come in the, in the video conference systems. Now, not everyone in our audience is a professional trainer. So how can people use this in their more casual training in their sort of brown box lunch discussions or other, other uh, developing environments that aren't a, a full-blown training program? Yes, so, so I think the fundamental rule is ask, don't tell, right? With, uh, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, we got an avalanche of communications material coming from many different organizations and from many different part of, parts of the world. And I have to say, I was quite sad to see that this communications material was only focusing on telling the people what to do, you know, wash your hands, keep your distance, don't touch your face, tell, tell, tell. So don't get me wrong, it's important. However, at some point, people switch off, right? It's been months now. And so whenever we see, you know, this type of communications, wash your hand, blah, 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 we just ignore them. We don't, it's not that we ignore them, we don't see them anymore, right? So we need to engage them, we need to relate to people's life. So instead of just telling the rules, uh, you know, and it's true for, you know, any set of rules, not just COVID-19, asking questions to drive self-reflection is the key. So there is one extremely simple yet powerful question that I use all the time. It works every time. It's the following, you know, which of these rules is your weak, weak point? Um, which one do you have a hard time to follow? So for example, if I'm asking you this question, Eric, now, among those three rules, I said, wash your hand, keep your distance, and don't touch your face. Which one do you need to work on? What's your answer? That's a really interesting question. And I think it is keep your distance. Um, because I think it is, I will tend to be mo moving forward or coming close mm -hmm. to people and, you know, without the markers on the floor or without really paying attention mm -hmm. to it, I can find myself being three feet away instead of six feet away. Um, and because I'm always thinking about something else. So that's a good one. That's mm -hmm. a good, good prompt. Keep your distance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. So you see the difference. I mean, yes. the moment I tell you, wash your hand, keep your distance, blah, 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 your mind becomes passive. But the moment I ask you, which one of these rules do you need to work on? Ah, suddenly it's about you, you know, it, it, it pushes you to think about your habits and your behaviors. And now you realize what you need to work on to improve your, your uh, safety, right? Uh, absolutely. I'll be thinking about it differently when I leave, the, leave the, uh, my home office today. <laughs> That's good. So, you know, if you want to take it a step further and make uh, your meetings and training more engaging, again, I think we need to, you know, think about experiences too. So 
an example to continue with 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 this example actually you know we kept hearing from experts that we were touching our face too much so we thought about a, a safety moment that anyone could do at the beginning of their virtual meeting or training and what we do is that um, basically you ask the people to put some paint on their fingers or anything like we had some people putting some lipstick and even uh, nutella on their fingers <laughs> <laughs> so you do that at the beginning of the meeting and then you ask them to forget about it and you just you know go on with the meeting or the training and at first you know everyone is so aware of you know it on, on their fingers so they you know they just keep their fingers all uh, wide open and don't touch uh, their face but I can guarantee you that after a while there is some pains you know all over their face the keyboard <laughs> the phone <laughs> everywhere it is messy but it's very conv convincing right I mean suddenly you realize whoa that's actually true I keep touching my face all the time <laughs> and so it, it is fun but it's it's also you know yeah convincing I mean to realize the the habits that we have so and finally one last thing i'd like to say as well is is that you know eye contact is as key in a classroom or a meeting room as it is in a virtual environment and it's very hard because in a virtual you know um meeting or training we have especially in a training we have to follow what's going on on the slides the chat room the list of participants the polls the videos etc and when we look at people, we, you know, we look at their image on the screen, right? And then basically the eye contact is lost. So we've done some tests, you know, different tests with different sessions. And we, we ask for feedback about the sessions, not feedback about the eye contact specifically, but overall about the sessions. And we realized that actually looking at the webcam was making a huge difference. It feels very weird, you know, talking with passion to a webcam or listening to someone deeply, uh, you know, looking at the webcam instead of looking at them on the, you know, their video image on the screen. But it makes a really big difference. Basically, people feel special. I mean, the magic of connecting with people happens when you, you look at the webcam. So I know it feels weird, but that's something I'm, I'm trying to improve <laughs> and I see the difference. Absolutely. No, that is, that is truly difficult. I've tried even putting a little uh, a cutout picture of, of someone next to the webcam <laughs> to, to have a, actually have a face to look at. Uh, but you're right. We, we are all trained to look at the person's face, which is not looking at their face mm -hmm. in that virtual environment. Yes. Now, I know that you, one of the things you have done, one of the reasons we first spoke to you when, when uh, interviewing you for the, the Your It book was this passion you had about bringing health and safety training to, to young people. And you were doing it all over the world with some really interesting mm -hmm. programs. What, what are you doing in that area now? What's, what's been your, your latest developments? I'm happy you're, you're asking me this question. So, so the program we, we talk about in, in your excellent book, by the way, your it is still very active and successful, but now I would like to, to go a big step further, you know, today more than ever, I would like to develop a safety leadership program for kids. Um, you know, with what's going on now, kids are kind of thrown into the adult uh, world with all these measures to, to fight uh, COVID. And just to give you an example, my son who is six will go back to school next week and he will need to wear a, a face mask uh, all day and he's entering a new school. And can you imagine you won't be 
even able to discover the face of his teacher, not the face of the other kids in the class. So I'm, I'm very concerned about that. I'm concerned about the impact it's going to have on his relationships, uh, you know, integration in this new school, and also on his understanding of the cu curriculum because his English is not his first uh, language. So I'm not sure he will be able to understand the kids and, and the teacher, right, with the mask. So my question is the following. Why don't we involve kids and teenagers in our efforts to find solutions to fight uh, the pandemic and find a new normal that is, you know, not going to impact them so negatively. You know, they are impacted. So we, I think we need to involve them in finding solutions, right? And why don't we encourage them from an early age to think of ideas to solve problems? Why don't we show them that we value their ideas by trying them out? You know, a key to deal with uncertainty is to learn to adapt. And I think we all agree that we have a lot to learn from kids on adapting, right? So the way I see it, one of the key components of this program would be to ask them to identify a health, safety or environment issue in their community, you know, whether it's the school or the neighborhood uh, that impacts them and get them to brainstorm solutions and build a project and try, uh, you know, to sell it and implement it. So, for example, they would have to try to get an appointment to present the project to the head of the school or the people in charge in the city and defend their ideas. You know, what a great opportunity to learn about meta-leadership at an early age, right? So I would love to find a company to collaborate with, um, you know, to create this uh, health, safety and environment leadership program for kids. You know, a lot of companies have both a strong expertise in, uh, in, in safety and have also lots of great leaders. They also have expertise in leadership. So I think that for companies to help the new generation um, to grow, um, you know, the, the new generation to help them grow as safety leaders instead of sending their managers and employees to safety leadership training later once they are grown up will be a win-win situation for both the companies and the local communities. Basically, exactly how you demonstrate it in your book, right? I think it's a, it's a vision that can have a big impact later. So, and I actually hope you would consider joining this adventure as you know your experience would be so valuable in such a program uh you know michael i'm always always happy to work with you and and brainstorm <laughs> ideas and see what we could do and i think you're right i mean it is uh so often and you look at, at safety things such as seat belts and and tobacco use and other other issues it was getting working through children that actually we created change in adults uh, and because they bring a, a, an openness to new ideas and an open and, and a a grasp of of the benefits and why you want to change and adapt. So mm, I think I think you're really you're really onto something there, and we'll be happy to collaborate with you going forward. And perhaps one of our listeners works for such an organization that would like to uh, to embark on this and help uh, help get things going. So I, I hope everyone has taken yes. away from today's episode some some. Uh, insightful lessons, some things you can put to work right away. I know that I have some things that will make a difference in, in our trainings going forward. So, Muriel, thank, thank you so much for the work you do, and thank you for joining us today. And to all of our listeners out there, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, keep leading. You never know when your Europe moment will pop up, and you've got to be ready. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much. Stay safe. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.